Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. Today's speaker, Thomas Simmers, joined Arlington Street Church in January 2012. This fall, he will begin his second year in the Master of Divinity program at Andover Newton Theological School. Thomas was born on a small farm in southeastern Ohio where he was raised without religious affiliation. He discovered Unitarian Universalism in 2002 while a student at Marietta College in Ohio. My friends, Thomas Simmers. Well, come on then. My grandma would often say these words to me when I was a young child. She would say them as if we'd already had a conversation. And I had agreed to join her in some activity. Well, she would say, the day is not getting any longer. Come on, let's go. This was my invitation to join her in the unannounced activity which was about to begin. We might be heading to the far edge of the yard to plant a patch of iris. Or this might be the day that Grandma decided to see what would happen if she were to plant those pits from uh, the, sorry, let me start that over. That Grandma decided to see what would happen if she planted peach pits on the hillside out back. What was certain was that Grandma, when Grandma said, well, come on then, she was ready to go outside and do something. And she was counting on me to be ready too, even if I didn't know it. Looking back on the string of invitations, I can see now that they were not nearly as random as they seemed at the time. There seemed to have been two unspoken principles which guided Grandma. First, there was always something new in the activities. Yes, we planted bulbs once and a peach pit later. We planted seeds in a tray and grew them to seedlings and planted those outside as well. Another time, we took a clipping from the shrub and we coaxed it into taking root but we only planted bulbs once. We only planted seedlings once. We only planted the leftover pits from the peach cobbler one time. Well, come on then, was in part, grandma's way to get me to explore new things, to learn by doing. Secondly, though, these invitations never came while I was already playing or reading or helping someone with something. They always came when I was moments away from declaring I'm bored, there's nothing to do. This usually meant that I was slouched in the chair in the living room near the TV but not paying attention to it. At the time, part of the excitement of following along with Grandma was the amazing luck that even though Grandma didn't know it, I was in desperate need of something to do. Looking back, it is pretty amazing that Grandma could tell that a child laying in a chair, staring at the ceiling with a book falling from his hands and the TV blaring nearby might be feeling bored. Grandma's invitations, though, they weren't always fun. 
Uh, sometimes we were picking and husking corn for supper, and that was okay until we found the worms. I immediately wanted to quit. But Grandma said, you decided to come along. No one forced you, and therefore I should finish what I had started. So I stayed, and I survived, and for the rest of the summer, whenever Grandma said, well, come on then, I would stop and ask, we're not doing corn again, are we? <laughs> Before following along. So imagine, there I am at nine years old. I'm sitting upside down in the old rocking chair with my head dangling toward the floor, wondering which is gonna happen first. Is the blood rushing to my head going to make me feel uncomfortable and give up? Or is my slow, inch by inch progress toward the floor going to leave me laying there? And then, well come on then, I hear my grandma say. It's too nice a day to let go to waste. I immediately forget my experiment. I roll out of the chair and I hurry to put on my shoes. This time, Grandma's holding two empty milk jugs, so I don't even bother asking about the corn. In companionable silence, we walk outside to where she's positioned a large metal barrel and an old styrofoam cooler to catch the rain when it falls off the edge of the roof. We dunk those milk jugs into that cold water and fill them with water that is filled with floating green gunk growing all through it. I have to use both hands to force my jug beneath the water, and I gasp in shock at just how cold the water is on my hands. Once we're loaded up with as much water as we can manage, Grandma leads us around the yard, and we stop by each plant. From time to time, she'll point to a drooping one and say, let's give that one a drink, and I pour a little bit from my jug. Eventually, we make our way beneath the large tulip tree, and its branches way above are giving us shade from the bright sun. Do I give this one water, I ask her. She says, you can if you'd like. And so I do, I pour the last of my water at the base of this large tree. And as I do, she explains that the tree probably didn't need a drink as much as the small seedlings because its roots were so much deeper and broader and could reach much more water. And then with our water depleted, we sit down in the shade of the tree and we watch the slow waters of the Muskingum River some 50 yards away going down. Community begins for many of us with family, like my time with grandma, and then it extends to family, friends and neighbors and beyond. One of the six sources of Unitarian Universalism, Jewish and Christian teachings, which call us to respond to God's love by loving our neighbors as ourself. It's first found in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 16 through 18. They read like this. You must not go about as a slanderer among your people you must not stand idly by when your neighbor's life is at stake. I am the Lord. You must not hate your brother in your heart. You must surely reprove your fellow citizen so that you do not incur sin on account of him. You must not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the children of your people, but you must love your neighbor as yourself. And later, in verses 33 through 34, when a foreigner resides with you in your land, you must not oppress him. The foreigner who lives with you must be, like, be to you like a native citizen, so you must love him as yourself, because you were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. In these verses, the ancient Israelites have been commanded to act in caring, devoted, supportive ways to one another. They must not slander one another. They must stand up in defense of one another's lives. They must not seek revenge on one another, and they must forgive one another. Yet they must still also call out bad behavior. 
These are the ways that they've been commanded to love one another, to act with compassion and goodwill toward everyone who lives with them. Even if they don't like each other, even if they disagree on what the right way to live is, even if they look different or talk different, or some have generational ties to the area while others have just moved in. Embedded within the call to love our neighbors as ourselves, I find echoes of many of the seven principles, but most especially the sixth, the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. World peace must begin with our neighbors, with our families, and with ourselves. There's something for each of us to do. I'd like to share a story with you now from a book called Our Seven Principles in Story and Verse. It's by the Reverend Kenneth Collier. The story is Hare's Gift, and it goes like this. This is a story about hair. Back in the old days, no one lived in towns or villages. Instead, they just set up a hut, any old place. Sure, it was a trifle inconvenient, but no one ever thought about living any other way. Well, one day, Hyena decided he wanted to set up a new hut that would be the biggest and the grandest ever made. He searched out a good site with sweet water, with cool shade from an enormous tree, and he set out to build his hut. In time, he finished, and it was indeed grand. It was enormously tall, and its walls were white and bright and decorated with many wonderful designs, zigzags and spirals and circles. Hyena was proud of his new hut, and he decided to have a feast to show it off. He went to all the other huts in the area, and he invited everyone, everyone, including Hare, to come. And everyone came, and everyone admired Hyena's hut, and they stayed, and they had a good time. Well, that is everyone except Hare. Hare didn't bother to come at all. So the next day, Hyena, feeling insulted by Hare not coming to the feast, went, and he grabbed Hare angrily and demanded to know, why didn't you come to admire my grand new hut? Grand new hut, says Hare. Why should I come see your hut? I could build a better one in half the time. And as for your feast, why should I go to your feast and just be bored? I, I could give a better feast and everyone would forget about yours. Well, so Hyena steps back and with a smug smile, he says, you're on. It took me one full moon to build and decorate my hut. So you, you have half a moon. And your feast, your feast had better be a good one. As for me, I expect I'll have a winter robe made of hair skin. So then Hyena leaves, and Hare is left scratching his head. Hare says to himself, well, you've really done it to yourself this time. When are you going to learn to keep your big mouth shut? And he sits down, and he thinks about what he's going to do. Suddenly, with a great idea, he jumps up, and he runs around to all of the neighboring huts. And he asks, everyone to come and to help him. He promises them two, two marvelous, unheard of gifts and a wonderful feast when the work is finished. So people begin trickling in and Hare shows them where they should set up their huts. And once everyone is set up and ready to work, they begin working. The best woodworkers start gathering wood for poles and they straighten them and they put them in place. The best painters begin mixing paints and painting the walls. The best artists begin to put decorations on those walls, and all the others begin to pre prepare food and drink for the feast that will follow. In short, Hare figured out how to make everyone else do the work. And while everyone else was working, he spent the time in the forest, 
where he found a hollow log and a couple of sticks. And he spent that entire half moon just fiddling around with his log and his sticks. At the end of the moon, Hyena comes back, smiling and sharpening his skinning knife. Hare shows him the new hut, and there it is, looking a lot like Hyena's. Just how is this better than my hut, demands Hyena, smiling even more and testing the sharpness of his blade. What are you, blind as well as stupid, Hare asks. Just look around and you'll see. And as they looked around, Hyena noticed that the huts of all the people were there, arranged neatly in a circle, all of the huts facing the best sun, and there were all the people going about their business, laughing, talking, and helping one another. My hut, says Hare, is better than yours because it was built by everyone, and everyone lives near it, where we can work and play together. The people here overhearing this conversation look around and realize that it really is nice to live together, helping and knowing one another. And that was Hare's first gift, the gift of the village. Hyena, losing his smile at this point, says, well, you also promised a better feast than mine. And at this, the people run and they get the food and the drink that they had prepared. And because no one had to do it all, each brought the food that they cooked best. And at the feast, everyone's favorite foods were present and everyone was happy, which of course meant that everyone felt relaxed and the storytellers told their best stories. And after a while, before anyone thought to ask about Hare's second gift, he goes into his hut and he drags out his hollow log and his sticks. So far, Hare says, this has been a good feast, but I want it to be the best feast ever. So here is my second gift. And with that, Hare picked up the sticks and began to tap the log with them. And he beat out a simple rhythm. And as he warmed to more and more complex rhythms, the people began to twitch and sway and move. And suddenly, Butterfly jumps up and begins swinging her body and moving in a circle around the fire. And soon everyone joins her, dancing to the rhythm of the drum that Hare has invented and given to them. Some say that Hare really gave the people three gifts, the village, the drum, and music, while others claim that the music and the drum are really just one. But it hardly matters. I'm sure Hare enjoys the argument. So welcome on then, there's a lot of work to do. And if we don't know where to start or what to do, there are others who will gladly show us and help us. Neighbor and self are just the first steps toward community. It's really sweet to live together, to share, to help, to know one another. There is something for each of us to do. If not us, who? If not now, when? Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email at office at ASCBoston.org or through our Facebook page. If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, please consider a contribution by checking the mail or through our website, ASCBoston.org.